Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Hello and welcome to Collaborative Resonance, another episode in David Resner's podcast series, Staging Sound. Well, this is somewhat different, perhaps, from the other podcasts in your series, David, because on this occasion, you are one of the interviewees. I'm Miles Anderson, an actor, director and collaborator with David on two of the projects we're going to discuss today. And we're here with a third collaborator, Bella Merlin, actor, songwriter, and professor at the University of California, Riverside, who was involved in all three. I'm going to be an informal moderator of our discussion today on what, David, you've called distributed creativity, and Bella, you've called collaborative resonance. I wonder if you could each start by introducing us to the three projects we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Thank you so much, Miles. Yes, so the first of the projects was called Tilly Nobody, Catastrophes of Love. And it was a fact-inspired solo show uh, based on the life and loves of Frank Vedekind and his muse wife, Tilly. And because it was a solo show, I knew that all the components such as uh, lighting, props, costumes, and particularly sound would be significant partners in the actual um, manifestation of the piece. So that was Tilly Nobody, Catastrophes of Love, project number one. David, do you want to tell us about the second one? Yes, very happy to. Um, so project number two, which was six years later, could you believe it? So we, well, the Tilly was in 2010, and the next project was more of a research project, really. So it didn't have the, a creative output or production at the at the core of it, although we did produce a lot of creative material, but it was really a, a what uh, in theatre studies we call a practice as research project, i.e. using methodologies, using processes of creating work in order to explore a particular question. Now, in this case, we were interested in what happens to, again, to factual material, in particular to interview material, so very much inspired by a movement uh, in the UK in particular called verbatim theatre. What happens to that when we when we apply different methods of making it music, you know, rendering it rhythmical, rendering it tonal, exploring its sound melodies, its its sort of uh, vocal inflections and all those kind of things. Um, I've, I've actually sort of looked back. This was a, a trip down the down memory lane for us all. Um, I looked back at the application I wrote in order to get a bit of funding to get you both over to Munich, which is where we where we did the project. And um, I wrote there full-mouthed, with a full-mouthed sort of prose, I said, um, uh, symptoms of increasingly enmeshing of speaking and singing, theatrical and musical gesture, acting and musicking, signifying and sounding space is the presence of the musicians or sound designers within the theatrical space and or the double function of actors, such as you both are, as musicians and vice versa. So that's something we, we try to explore. And then we said um, verbatim drama is a particularly inter- interesting case in point as it often investigates and incorporates the unconscious melodies and rhythms of everyday speech into the conscious musicality of the constructed drama. 
In order to do that, we actually, you, I think, Bella, came up with a really good topic for, for this because you can't just work with no material. And the material was that we interviewed uh, people from very different generations, from different continents, different genders, etc., with certain questions that would trigger responses to do with their generation. Did they have specific idols? Were there, were there people that they admired? Uh, did they wear a wristwatch still or, or no longer? Did they actually experience war? So th th questions like this try to tease out certain experiential differences in generation. And that's the material that we used. And in the very end, we actually published uh, an online article uh, dissecting our experience and coming up with a number of conclusions, which you will find in the show notes, uh, which was called The Document as Music, Exploring the Musicality of Verbatim Material in Performance. And it was at the Journal for Artistic Practice in 2018. Bella, take us to 2020. <laughs> Indeed. Well, 2020 Vision, uh, our third collaboration. I still think this is a genius title, by the way. I, I really, I, no, I mean, it's, it's always so obvious and that, and it's ingenious. Thank you for that title. Uh, and I wish I'd introduced Tilly in quite so elegant a way that you just introduced singing the document. So I'll try and be a little more elegant now. I was due to be directing something at UC Riverside when uh, lockdown happened, COVID lockdown in, uh, it must have been the March of 2020. So rather than just pick a play off the shelf and do another <laughs> somehow put together Zoom production, I thought this was a great opportunity to actually create something with the students, for the students, and test just how collaborative we could be while never, ever being in the same room together. So 2020 Vision was, um, it's about 75 minutes. It's a compilation of monologues that the students wrote reflecting on their experience during COVID lockdown, which was still happening at the time we made the piece. Uh, but I also knew that I wanted song to be a significant part of this, partly because the students love doing musicals, partly because I'm a passionate songwriter, and also because I thought it would be another great opportunity to collaborate with you. And I thought if there's anybody who will find a way of creating a hybrid film, theatre, musical without us ever being in the same room together, it's going to be Dr. David Rosner. So that was the manifesto. And so we did, we actually finished it. It was a very short creation time. I think we had six weeks to go from absolutely nothing to a finished film um, with, as I say, the students uh, basically rehearsing on their own, but we can talk about that a little bit more in the end um, or later. Um, but this was very much um, an experiment that felt like an exciting, if not foolhardy thing to do. Um, at which point I'm wondering, Miles, do you want to say what you what your um, involvement was? Because I know that you're a collaborator on all three projects. Yeah, I mean, I I, I believe I directed Tilly. <laughs> um, I did. I directed Tilly and I sort of collaborated on the writing of it, only because, um, as you know, we're a husband and wife. And so whatever Bella writes, I usually have some some idea about it and I and I and I criticize and I say things like no I don't believe that no that's awful write it again no that doesn't sound very nice or how about this and sometimes she listens occasionally and sometimes she doesn't and then directing her of course was an absolute pleasure I had the most enormous fun on that singing the document well singing the document well it was Professor Rosner who invented a 
J sharp, which was a new, which is a completely, completely unique key, which he found for me. I'm not the most <laughs> musical of people, as you know, David. I was an I was an actor on that, and I just did what I was told. And some of the things I didn't understand at first what it was about, but I had it explained to me, and it was um it was a, the most enjoyable week's work. It was absolutely delightful, and I think, David, I thought you came up with such a brilliant piece. It really was very funny. We still, if we want to laugh, we'll still, we'll still play. No, I don't. I really don't want anything like that. No, I don't. I really don't do anything like that. Sometimes I write down things that I've been looking at. Mum gave me a journal a couple of years ago, but I really haven't done anything in it. No. I remember you trying to teach me about beats and about coming in on the beat rather than a moment behind or in front of the beat. So I, I think we found a compromise between the two of us. I think uh, <laughs> sometimes you followed me and sometimes I followed you. And in the end, it's a very intricate um, nine-eighth, seven-eighth kind of uh, rhythm, which people have admired ever since. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, then uh, um, 2020 Vision, uh, the... The other show that, that Bella devised had been, as Bella will probably explain later at some stage, was created because everybody was in lockdown. We did it entirely on Zoom. Uh, and, um, I was just a sort of, a sort of collaborator, really. I mean, I, I did, I, I am proud to say I came up with the idea of one of the songs. I'd said, I said to Bella, I think we need a love song at some particular point. I, I actually, I actually said, I thought we needed something a bit James Brown. It didn't <laughs> turn out to be James Brown. It turned out to be his sister. <laughs> <laughs> or cousin. But, uh, or cousin. Yeah. But we needed a ballad. And so I would, again, critique things and um, suggest things and, I think you should say a little about about actually the actual collaboration on the yeah. two projects, Tilly Nobody and 2020 Vision. And we were on different continents for nearly the whole of that production time, weren't we? That's it. Yeah, that's that that that's been one of the. Well, I've I've been wondering if what whatever happens if we work together in a room. But we did do that, and we didn't kill each other, uh, and it did work out well. Otherwise, I would have formed the theory that we just must be five thousand miles apart in order to function. But it is it's not quite the case. No, but it it is worth, and I think that was one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about our collaborations because I think it they are quite interesting and unique in terms of how we dealt with sound and what, what role sound was. I mean, it's in some ways one could say, particularly Tilly Nobody is in the best sense possible, a conventional theater show with a character and dialogue or monologue. And, and, you know, sort of, it's not in that sense, experiential, there's, there's a psychology, there's a narrative and the music supports that. And the music itself also is, I think, um, you know, an almost traditional theater music in that it, it, it creates certain motifs. It creates atmospheres. It holds certain sort of strands of the narrative together. Uh, it tries to weave a bit of a, a web of reminiscing and kind of, um, going back to certain motifs, et cetera, et cetera. The things that were unusual about it were 
a that songs were already built into it so it's a it's a curious sort of because it's not a musical i think but it is sort of a cabaret style you know it very much lends some of its theatrical devices from vedekind and from that time and from the kind of the 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 slightly heightened expressionistic um feel of the time and then what was in terms of how we we developed this because we we were wondering afterwards how, how why why did this work you know it shouldn't have worked really i think what was key and i remember this quite vividly was that we we had a few exchanges uh, by zoom or by skype i think it was still at the time and by email about the project and then we found a time where you bella were back in the uk for a conference or other and i know, i remember coming to reading and we met in this rather rather ghastly hotel somewhere. This sounds more silly than it should. But we met in the lobby. Very important to know. We met in the lobby of this hotel. And there was this, and it was also Reading Festival. So all these people came in in and out looking like they've just been to a gig. So it was it was it was an you know opposite kind of a um, atmosphere. But the point is that you had written a script and the, you you had written the songs already or at least sketched out some of the songs. You had a lo- very clear ideas about where you wanted music and what the music should do etc. That's not saying that I was stuck with that, but but it helped enormously that you were, you know, in order to have to continue that conversation via email and via uh, Skype calls and all those things, it was so helpful to have that starting point and have you sort of lay a kind of a, a base layer of this is what I wanted to be and really explaining in great detail what the character of the show was, what the references were, et cetera, et cetera. And that gave us, and I know that's quite a few of the things like the more, I know we call it the circus slash Tom Waits feel of some of the songs, for example, you know. Sorry, how did you come? I mean, I'm just sort of going back to the very beginning of the show, which is it's a very haunting piece, really. I sort of find it it's it is a is a foreboding atmosphere. Something's going to happen. How did you actually engineer that in your head? How did you what did you think? What brought you to 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 actually write that piece? Well, if I remember correctly, and this is 10, 13 years ago, so I, I, I'm really a bit fuzzy about the, the details of what would what happened. But I do know that I, I think it was partly inspired already by melodies that were in the songs that Bella had written. So a lot mm-hmm. of the material I used, even if I, you know, made it from major to minor or, 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 or changed the tempo or, or the instrumentation, but quite a few of the, or, or a lot of the material came out of those songs. So that's the, that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that I think, um, I don't compose on, on, you know, paper, uh, or something. I don't write the music down. I have to sort of play it and hear it. Uh, and, and so I, I compose, if you want to call it that, in front of the computer with, with a, with a tool that to record things. And one of the important things that happens is that I need to find certain sounds. So one of the things was to find a good bass sound, for example, which was this sort of double bass sound, because I don't play the double bass. And the next thing was, and that's also that I, I found that quite interesting. I'm not a good pianist, so I'm not great around a keyboard. Um, but I'm a guitarist and I, I still had, uh, I still have it somewhere, but it's probably gathering dust somewhere. 
a device uh, which is like a, it's called a MIDI pickup. So it's essentially a device that picks up my guitar strings and makes that into a signal that a keyboard can understand, which means I can play all the sounds that are available through a keyboard, and whether that's a, a, a double bass or a, 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 a trumpet or a piano or a glockenspiel. We will come back to this uh, to this glockenspiel. Th then I can hear that, and and then it's a selection of which sounds that I can access you know, make me, make me want to play around. And then I think it came out of that, but you were absolutely right, Miles. This sort of descending baseline is very much, it's a trope of foreboding. You know, it's a very, you have it in Baroque opera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I wasn't terribly original in coming up with this. One last thing about that opening, which I found funny, and I think I've written about this somewhere was that I had learned at the time that in order to, to create something that sounds reasonably convincing, it's good to mix actual instruments and virtual instruments. It's always a good, good, good thing to do because you can hide the artificiality that artificial sort of or virtual instruments often have. So I asked a colleague, um, Steve Cockett, uh, from, from Exeter, who's a, who's a great saxophone and clarinet player and asked him to play a few lines, you know, also for a couple of other songs, just to kind of, you know, sound more real and more authentic and more warm, etc. And he played a wonderful sort of, you know, eerie clarinet line over that uh, a bass. And then at, in some, at some point of the, the editing process, his line got sort of pushed a, a second behind or something. So it wasn't in line with what he had actually recorded. And that made it rhythmically very interesting because he was sort of out of, out of sync, but in a good way. <laughs> So what I'm saying is sometimes it's 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 not composition, it's mistakes <laughs> that make it and, interesting. And what about what about the that sudden break into the circus music? How did you know, was that was that just a whim if I remember? Did, did we just say, Oh, I think we need a absolute change here? We knew we needed circus music because we wanted to have the echo of um Frank Vedic's we birth spirit yeah. starts with a circus. Um, but then David had some, I, I forgot the Tom Waits reference. That's really helpful mm. because, um, well, I, I'd love you to say more about how you came up with the circus music because I know at the time it hadn't been what was in my imagination, but what you came up with was way better than what was in my imagination. So I'm curious about the circus music. Both of us are. I, I remember being actually not terribly happy with it either. So it's funny that we kind of settled on it, although we, we all imagined different things. I know I tried, I tried recording it with, with my actual drum kit, et cetera, et cetera, and try to sort of, and it just, I just didn't have the equipment and the experience to really pull it off as a, as a sort of proper, cause I mean, coming back to Tom Waits, Tom Waits, records are sound as if they're recorded by one microphone in a room with creaky chairs. But of course, I'm sure there's actually a lot of work going into that, you know, and it is actually probably quite deliberate and quite crafted. This, this feeling of, of it being quite improvised and on the, on the fly or whatever the, the, the expression is. Well, it's very, it's very, it's slightly off, isn't it? Yeah. The, yeah it is the, quite the, off. The, the um, the mute, the, and um, the circus music. And it's because 
I think what's wonderful about it is that here we are in this broken down circus mm. and now we've got a slightly broken down circus piece of music and that's what fit it fits so wonderfully into it i think i mean what was interesting i think about the, the decision about this song and also about the the girl on the what is it called the girl on the on the elastic wire the elastic, on the elastic wire, wire um mm. which was also stylistically very different it's very sort of pretend faux spanish you know it's sort of faux flamenco yeah. And, yeah. And, and a bit sort yeah. of so usually i would i would probably go for or or would would um aspire for a theater music to be uh, of one feel you know to sort of have a certain kind of instrumentation and to sort of set itself a certain amount of rules to follow and i kind of did that i mean there were the same instruments that kind of reoccurred that bass line was important the glockenspiel that came in was important etc cetera, etc cetera. and those two songs at least they were they broke out of that world they they opened a, a new sound world i think with the the very edgy brass sounds that I had on the computer, which were not great brass sounds. I mean, nobody would say, oh, that sounds like Michael Jackson or something. It's it's not great brass at all. But I think that was part of it to sort of really sell the idea that this is a slightly different level of reality. And the same goes with the, with the girl on the elastic rope. This, this, it was a quotation. It became sort of this you know, this musical cupboard that you open and there's a Spanish band sitting there and then you close it back up, you know, something like that. Bella, why collaborative resonance? So this phrase has just been occurring to me in recent times as I think about the relationship that the collaborative relationship the three of us have, that we've had these three very distinct projects. They're quite, quite different. Yet each time we seem to get on each other's wavelength and I kind of use that deliberately as, as a sort of um, analogy here where, as we're talking about sound. Um, and I, it occurs to me because I, I have um, tried working with a couple of other people and it hasn't worked each time. And the first time, actually, David, I probably, you were probably aware of this. I was going to be working with somebody that was locally based in, in Davis and it just, it, it wasn't happening. And then of course, the fact that Frank and Tilly uh, lived much of their life in Munich and you and your family have the connections to Munich, it just suddenly everything made sense in terms of um, the, the research materials. And then, of course, the, the, the um, musical elements that you brought had that, if you like, German cabaret quality that you would know far better than I would know. So the part of the reason I think that I, I'm going back to the circus music was I was imagining something perhaps a little more, uh, you know, Barnum and Bailey, a little more Americanized. And what we got was something more, dare I say it, and I, I mean it with, a, with all due respect, <laughs> umpa band. It was sort of like, umpa, oh, yeah. umpa, um. and it was very umpa, yeah. <laughs> I had to shift my imaginative connection, but you were way more in resonance with the, the, the content mm. of the material. And I, I, when I talk about collaborative resonance, one of the things that seems to come to mind is, first of all, humor. And that would seem like a strange thing to say needs to be in the mix when you're working with sound. But I, what I love about working with you, David, is you find a humor in the music, even when it goes dark. There's a kind of mischief. And I think it's how you pick particular sounds. I think it's how you mix particular sounds. 
but also the joy I find of the three of us working um, with 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 music and theatre is that um, we also are prepared to offer something to each other and have the others go, ah, uh-uh, that doesn't work, and to not feel imaginatively um, defensive about it or, or restrictive about it. So again, I go back to the circus music. I remember you saying, "Try it." Try it in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. And there was something about your understanding of what would happen when the body in space was working with the sound that would actually access something that the creative writer, whatever, sitting at a computer going, oh, this isn't what I thought. And that you were just spot on. You were just absolutely Mm. right. In the space, it had the kind of... The fact you said brassy, brass, it had a kind of brassy, sassy feel to it that then actually informed how we staged it and informed how I use my body at that particular moment. And I say that because we've, we're restaging it now. So, okay, we originally did it in 2010. We're now going back to it in 2023. So 13 years later. So I have a different body. The material sits differently post Me Too. Um, I feel differently about um, some of the choices Frank and Tilly were making, the, the blurring between their profession and, and their uh, domestic lives. And therefore, what I found in that that circus moment is a greater comfort in it, in a mature body, in daring to be a little bit in quotation marks. Mm. And if I might just also swing us back to the girl on the elastic wire, that one, actually, that was that was a moment when Miles said, we're about three quarters or two thirds, somewhere about that, through the piece, it needs another song. So initially we had four songs. Mm. And whilst the um, musical score is there a lot of the time, there's a really filmic quality, I find, as the actor working with, with your soundscape for Tilly. It's always there as a partner, or it will suddenly come in at a moment of silence and then swing us to an, another emotional place. But Miles is sense dramaturgical sense was "Mm, we need another song here and Mm. if you recall we created that very short notice it was like a week before we opened yeah yeah and the first line is in palermo i saw a dancer and that was really seems to be what then unlocked for you that 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 kind of mediterranean feel and you're right it is like a cupboard opens which also is part of the collaborative resonance at that moment in the play the puppets have come out of a box our puppet of Mm. frank and our puppet of, of tilly so there is a kind of commenting on the material and taking us to a different dramaturgical mode at that moment so everything seemed to synergize. Mm. Can I just pick up on one point you were just making because I think that part of the collaboration is that it really is a dialogue between the two of us. So, you know, in a, in a, in a very traditional setting, as a theatre musician, you respond to the material, you offer, you know, things to illustrate or sometimes to counterpoint, but, you know, it's very much in service of. Um, and, of course, that, that was also part of what this was. But quite often, let's just say you were rehearsing, rehearsing something and then Reed Wagner, who needs to be mentioned at this point, who was the, the stage manager who recorded everything, sent videos, sent notes, did fantastic meticulous notes about the music. So that helped a lot sort of just to, to get a sense of what was working, what was not. 
And then I played to the video. So I had like a video of a rehearsal and I timed it and I said, okay, this is about a minute 50 and I'll do it. And of course, in the next rehearsal, you would do it in one minute 30 or something. <laughs> so, so it, it would when no I knew the right. lines better. <laughs> but you, exactly. And the movements were a bit quicker. But the point was that there was always that point when you said, well, actually, now I'm just going to play to the music rather than asking David to change the music time and time again, because actually the music has a certain rhythm and a certain dramaturgy that is working. And so I just need to adjust my acting to that. So it was give and take, you know, it was sort of going, going back and forth. The other thing I looked up because I really thought, how did we, because it's all about communication. And when you're in a room, you pick up a lot of signals, a lot of sort of, you can, you can say a lot without saying a lot, but we had to put things into words a lot, which is difficult with sound. And I just looked up an email, which is from the 15th of August from 2010. And I just wanted to quote it that there was a sound where Tilly, you described it as she sort of sloughing layer after layer of her identity, like a snake gets out of its skin every, every summer or whatever, like, and you wanted a musical motif for that, which was, you know, difficult. And then I did something apparently. And then you, you, you said in the email, the sloughing motif always starts with a rattle. Spring six is good for that. So that's what's, what's the sound was called. This leads the audience to know that the sloughing is about to happen, circa four seconds. Whatever the wailing violin might be that you have in the opening, attraction one, it can be distorted here into a screechy, twisted sound for the snake sloughing. It's an insistent, grating, painful sound. <laughs> one hand you were very good at sort of saying very technical things like you've picked this one sound effect from a library of animal noises or something and that that works and the other one doesn't and that's really helpful to know and then the other is really describing an effect and saying this needs to be grating this needs to be insistent this needs to almost induce pain and that gave me an idea of well that should be high pitched and it should be a bit distorted and it should really feel sort of unhealthy etc cetera, etc cetera. and so so that became a, a motif it it was really just me wondering how did we how did we do that and i think it was a mixture of those things because we had to put it into words and it's it's really not not easy but because you're a musician yourself bella you you found i think you found it easier than others to actually to actually sort of talk about sound in a meaningful way david i want you to to cast your mind back to us at the tech sitting in that room with the sort of madness that that I think you as you met, uh, and you just you just named him Reed Wagner so really added to um, how you, you were very specific about where the sounds came from I remember it we it went over and over again I go really it's fine no no it's not fine you'd say you needed to be how did that come about? Why were you so specific? You were very specific about everything, but particularly <laughs> about the placing of the speakers. It's a good question. I don't, I don't remember what sort of what was behind that, but I, I do remember very vividly stepping off the plane after a 12 hour flight, coming straight to rehearsal. I remember there was no gap, nothing. I came straight into that room. And there was this wonderful atmosphere of just 10, 12 people all excellent at their craft. I remember, you know, the people doing the lighting, the stage, they were all wonderful people and really knew what they were doing. And there was this intensive, but, but very productive and very sort of genial atmosphere of we're doing something here and we're doing it proper. And I think that probably, I, I got sort of uh, infected with that sense of, 
well, if we're doing this, let's do it right. And I was very, very happy that it was at the Mondavi Theatre. And I, mm. I just remember because I produced everything on headphones, you know, and all of a sudden this music was in the space. They had a great subwoofer. It had a proper bass. It really sounded much better than I had anticipated. And knowing that I could play with that. And I, the other thing I knew, and I think this was, I picked that up from a colleague, from a friend who did, who's done a lot more music theater, uh, sorry, theater music than I have done, is that placement of the music is important and that you should sort of spend time making sure that the music is at the right, in the, in the right space within that space. And it makes a difference whether something is a sound that's coming from the left sort of saying, oh, here's an animal sort of shouting or a voice or whether it's a music that is, as you said, Bella, almost filmic and it needs to be sort of slightly at the front and kind of like a, like a film music or as if it's a music that is perhaps almost a memory of, of Tilly, of the character and comes from her subconscious. And then perhaps it should come from further back or it should be a bit muffled, almost as if it was from another building or something. And I think those choices had to do with what that music does dramaturgically, what, what effect it should have on the, on the audience as well. Um, and once you're in the space, it's almost better to do that with the speakers rather than with, with within the software or something, if, if that makes sense. So it's making music with the equipment at some point to, to, to the point that I can. And I'm not trying to overblow my own trumpet here. <laughs> well, mm. maybe I could just say that the joy of this collaboration where we have, um, you know, the combination of directing, acting, composing, songwriting, sound designing was we, we also think about the audience. So what, we, what's implicit in what we're saying is how are we, um, uh, evoking the audience's feelings. And there are a couple of times in Tilly where the music seeps in and I feel as the actor, oh, yeah, we're letting the audience know we're going mm -hmm. to this place. And it's usually, it's almost a manifestation of Frank's personality. There are a couple of times the soundscape is almost like the presence of Frank mm -hmm. creeping into something. And it's either... Uh, suspenseful or it's sorrowful or something. Mm -hmm. And I can feel myself as the actor performing. I'm working with the audience through the material that you, David, have given us, the sound designer, and that you, Miles, have given us, the director. So our collaboration goes into audience actor audience director audience sound mm. designer audience relationship except when you when you, when in singing the document miles anderson is singing in the key of f sharp then it yeah. slightly changes <laughs> then then no but you, you were saying there are sounds that you know make the audience really really yeah. fear for their life and that's sort of yeah. where you come in you know <laughs> no, i'm just i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> Singing the document took what we did in Tilly to a sort of more scientific or more sort of, I, I always thought of it as a laboratory where you really, you don't need to worry about the, the whole thing. You don't need to worry about the shape of a production of a performance, but you can pick little, I think we call them etudes at some point, sort of little exercises where we say, well, why don't we do this with the material? And, uh, oh, we've got three interviews here. And it's really interesting how everyone goes, um, all the time. Let's pick out those little moments and tell us, you know, see what they tell us, uh, except for everything that they say uh, in terms of the, the contents, which was interesting enough. Um, like. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like, uh, like, like, um, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
but um, <laughs> and what happens if we use this these three lines and put different types of music under it so what if we put some bland but rhythmical music under it would it will it lift what is being said to a different level will we listen to the melody of the speaker more or less what happens i mean what happens if we use music that is highly charged in terms of because that is something that theater music can also do. So you were talking earlier about those kind of subtle uh, sounds that just sort of change the temperature a little bit, that just, mm, but they're not concrete. Maybe even up in, the, in the case of Tilly, I often use sort of synthetic sounds that, that we, we couldn't quite place. Is that it was not an instrument, so you couldn't quite say, oh, there's a violin or something. So sometimes in the songs, there was just a little eerie little note in the background. So that's one strategy. The other, which I was just referring to, is to really go full quotation mode such as with the Spanish guitars, you know, saying we evoke a very specific uh, musical idiom, a particular culture. Or in the case of staging, um, not staging, sorry, singing the document, when we had that question about war, for example, and we got very different answers. You know, some people, there was someone from Israel who'd lived through, you know, all matter of wars and conflicts. Uh, there were young uh, young people amongst our interviewees, and this is, of course, before a few years before the Ukrainian war, um, that had not experienced war directly, but had heard of it in the news, et cetera, et cetera. So we took those kind of statements and then confronted them almost, or, or, or sort of punctuated them with, with war, with sort of songs that spoke of war, that spoke of certain generations, you know, Jimi Hendrix or, or, or U2 talking about, Sunday, bloody Sunday. So reference points that for many listeners, but not for all, would, would carry a very clear resonance and a very clear sort of evoke that sense very strongly. And we were just interested in, in, in trying to see, does that, is that too on the nose? You know, is it, is it actually, is it overkill if they both talk about war? Is it exposing something? So those were the kinds of exercises we did in, in that particular case. And that was quite, um, it was just quite interesting to, to do and to, to play out. So there was an inherent tension in the, in the, in the project, which was about the tension between, uh, what we were inspired by verbatim theater, by this notion of working with authentic statements by people exposed in interviews, et cetera, and repeated verbatim, uh, on stage. And then something which we both, uh, Bella and I had been, uh, inspired by a show in, in, in London called London Road by, by, uh, Adam Cork and Alaki Blythe who took this to, in my mind, to a next level because Adam Cork just used all this interview material, used all the cadences of the words of the people, the, the dialect, et cetera, et cetera, and lifted it into, into composition. Very, very skillful, very wonderful, and sort of made it what, what they didn't call a musical, but which, what in effect was something like a musical. And that seemed to be a contradiction. And that's, I think the question was, can musical strategies, musicalization, putting to music, putting to rhythm, uh, making soundscapes of, can all those kind of procedures help us understand the topic, the way people speak, the way they articulate something about their existence, about their experiences better or differently, or can, you know, what, what effects does it have? That was kind of the interesting question, because there is also an ethical question that can you do that with the material? Do we distort it? Do we trivialize it perhaps, et cetera, et cetera. Questions about time, watches, diaries. How did they happen? I 
think they were from you, Bella, weren't they? Oh, <laughs> I don't I know. I thought, I, I don't recall. know. I thought they I were thought from they were you. I, that's so weird. That shows our synergy because mm. I thought they were from you. Yeah. Um, uh, or maybe because we did two, we did a week of, of R and D, the two of us. That's right. Before yeah. we then came back. And I think while we were together, we were thrashing out, well, what, what might, get people talking because we were interested in the quality and texture of voice in terms of melody, rhythm, speed, as well as the content. So what might be questions that are going to evoke different feelings in people? Just I'm now backtracking a little bit to link our our projects here because Tilly being fact-based and very heavily based on Tilly Vedekin's autobiography. And yet there were sections of the autobiography where I knew I wanted the material, but I wanted to turn it into a song. So mm. how could I take her actual words, but gently blend them into song lyrics? So then when we started working on singing the document, um, one of our etudes or, or an, a strand of our research was how do we take what people are saying and hold on to the essence of what they're saying whilst also now constructing something that might have a more conventional um, song lyric to it, because I'm very fascinated Mm. by rhyme as well as rhythm. So how might we just gently rewrite what they've said? So it's not as strict verbatim as with uh, London Road and Alaki Blythe, but it is now actually, what, what are we doing to the people when we take their their material and their voices, which is what we were researching, and just gently artificialize it into something that has the structure mm. of um, a song or a piece of music. And that, that for me, in terms of singing the document, the, the, there were lots of different pleasurable moments. But one of the real pleasures was listening back to the interviews hearing what the the instrument might be that that person's voice might evoke. Mm-hmm. So um, one of uh, the people we interviewed, her, her voice was very much like a flute or a piccolo. It was... So how might that translate into a singable song? Another was quite sort of blousy and how might... What, what sort of song does that evoke? No, no. No, no, I've always been afraid that if I kept a diary and it started at a young age, that if I kept a diary, my mama was gonna find it and I sure was writing that shit down. So I was very intrigued as a songwriter more than a, a composer to how, how we, um, play with people's voices to create a different voice and at the same time I loved the etudes that you David set up that then Miles and I enacted because I felt very much that that we were there in some respects as your human resources you're just trying to avoid the word guinea pig aren't you I mean <laughs> I think I'm a music a musical person in that I enjoy sounds. I I know what I think something needs at a particular moment. But as far as actually you know picking up a guitar, I've been trying to learn guitar since I was ten and can still only play five five notes, five chords. So I don't think I'll ever be able to master any instrument. It just that bit's missing in my brain somewhere. But what you were very good at was you know going well he's. He's got this 
strange voice and he finds notes that aren't really shouldn't really be there um and so you would write it you'd write a piece that actually fitted what i was doing does that make sense rather than say to me no mars it goes like dumper 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 dump you yeah, go yeah, well yeah. he obviously is finding dumper dumper <laughs> dumper dump difficult so i think i'll write it that it goes dump 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 um that's I think that's a very good point because I think it, it transcends you in the sense that this was not about specifically your abilities or not non-abilities or whatever, but it's, it's really an approach. And I think to, to a point, it's something that I really learned at university because where I studied, um, this was not a conservatoire training where you learned proper technique, where you learned all the right ways of doing things, but it was a, it was a place where the approaches were very much about working with what you had. You know, we were all non-actors, non-musicians, non-stage designers, non-directors, but theater makers. And the first thing to realize is this is what we're quite good at and this is what we're really not very good at and, and, and to play with that and work around that. So, you know, you might come to a theater project and you would have three recorders and a drum or something, you know, in, in the cast. You know, this is sort of what we, you were given. And to work with that and to say like, no, 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 yeah. I need a string quartet. No, you had four recorders and a drop. Yeah. So to, to work with the material that you have and then to be, to improvise with that, but to kind of try to sell it in a way that it doesn't sound deficient, that it doesn't sound like, oh, they only had four recorders. That's terrible. But to say like, wow, they, they made that with four recorders and a, you know what I mean? It's sort of to, to work around that. I think that's something that I picked up in studying and, um, and then to, as you said, Miles, to, to find that dialogue of rather than saying, this is how I want it, you know, to say, where can we meet? And I think that's kind of where, where this, this stage of the, the document worked so well that we all brought something, you know, we all said, here, here's something that I can bring. And then we made something out of that. Yeah. And the other thing that worked really well was there was a, a, a really good give and take between co composing, and this is, means all of us, you can also act, you know, compose an, an, an acting score or something and improvising that. I remember there were some beautiful, um, reenactments of, of uh, you, Bella and you, Miles, uh, of a, of a couple you had interviewed and where you sort of evoked their spirit and their attitude to life. And I just provided a few chords in the background. <laughs> well, can I ask about that one? Because yeah. there were two iterations very specifically. And whilst it was a laboratory and we there was no pressure to produce, we did have a symposium at the end of that week where we wanted to share. And, you know, you've got some quite high profile guests there. So this wasn't just us and a couple of mates and a bottle of beer, you know, that we, we knew we did want to show something and um, this piece that you're talking about which where the provoking question had been about whether people wear a wristwatch anymore or not and um, the couple in question had very specific feelings about time and i remember quite vividly two different iterations one where you just had this sort of drum-like instrument yep. perhaps you can talk about that one a bit in a minute and another where you looped so that you were with the sound design reflecting the cyclical, almost Beckett-like element of dialogue that Miles and I were providing to reference the two people that mm. we were we had interviewed. How did you how did you play with sound there? What were those instruments, and how did you make those choices? Mm. It's interesting because I think it came quite intuitively out of 
out of the things I had there. So the one is this sort of box that you sit on called the cajon, which is like a uh, Spanish um, drum, which is used in flamenco and other things. And it's become very popular in sort of folk music and singer-songwriter music. And I I just found it a lot easier and carryable than, than a drum kit and also less intrusive, you know, simply for, from, from a noise perspective. So I think, if I recall correctly, the two versions were trying opposite things. One was sort of to punctuate almost, to kind of interrupt, to, to yeah, to sort of set little full stops, sonic full stops in between your sentences and to sort of have that kind of more rhythmical, more sort of clock ticking kind of a feel of a third dialogue partner, you know, two people having a dialogue and a third person, which is the cajon, interspersing, interrupting, kind of doing that. And that, that sort of had a particular... Uh, structure in a particular form. I knew she was officially retired when she started asking me what day it was. Yeah, I don't even ask what and time I, anymore. And what I just started is. saying it was Sunday. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I want to watch her since, uh, since I was a kid. Uh, sun comes up when the sun goes down. other one, which was more to sort of um, to provide you with a kind of sound bed, if you want to call it that. And I remember it was it was just uh, I did I think I used a lot of reverb on the on, a, on the guitar, and just sort of had majorish kind of chords, you know, um, hovering in the background. And, and through looping, I was able to um, not only you described that very well the cyclical you know, invoke the cyclical nature of time because there's a loop going on. But the other thing that happens is this kind of, if I may be so bold to call it the palimpsestic nature of, of looping, which means that you overwrite what you've done. You know, you, you add voices, you add layers to what you've already done. So that's something quite simple, a simple uh, a movement between two chords, let's just say, can become richer and richer because you add more notes and more harmonies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you also kind of accompany yourself, you know, you, you play with something you've just done a minute ago. So it's an interesting dialogue with your past, if you want to call it that. That, that, is, that is just so, it's very meta that you were dialoguing with your own past while we were talking about people dialoguing with their own past. I know. I, uh, I want to watch her since I was a kid. The sun goes up when the sun goes down. But, I mean, I, I just like to know what time it is during the day. I'm I really like bad about it. You will no, not ever, ever see me on a wristwatch. Not ever. I don't know. As time has always been my enemy, it's either going too fast or going too slow. I'm 
sometimes when we're out, I'll say, honey, what time is it? I don't really want to know what time it is. I want, I want to get up when I get up. I want to eat if I'm hungry. I don't care if it's dinner time. so vividly I remember so vividly the feeling of the drum the um that you were playing and the sense of you being behind us and that drum rhythm was almost driving us forward as opposed to when you were looping um and that did feel more like a river I, I really felt the um timelessness of these two people talking about time and the curious thing is one of them has now died so there's a kind oh, of poignancy yeah. around that the character that i was playing really? um uh, died a few few months ago so i i suppose that i'm uh, in terms of how material sits with us i, mm. I i'm i'm conscious of of how we were um doing something quite delicate quite poignant with somebody's story about how mm. they relate to time so anyway i just was interested about yeah absolutely absolutely i love poignancy we had poignancy in 2020 vision didn't we massively um, done Miles. massively done <laughs> because well we did and that was the time when i said to bella you know all these people all these kids are locked behind these screens because it was covered no one could meet i felt there was a tremendous sadness about the whole of the world but certainly in america it was um, it was magnified and um, probably, I don't know why that was, but it seemed to be. And there were all these these young people sitting behind their screens, cr trying desperately to make Bella's dream, her, her concept come out, come true, be real. And she would drive them incessantly to be better at this or better at that or not doing this and not doing that. And I said, you know, at some stage, I've just got this feeling it needs some sort of do what, what do. The words are something about, I want to, I need to touch, I need to touch you or something like that. And Bella came up with this, this tune, this, um, I want to reach out of my screen and take you to places I'm where you've never take been. You to And it was just, it was just absolutely brilliant because the day the kids just absolutely loved it. You could see them change in their faces yeah. because that was all they'd wanted to do was actually touch someone, feel someone, be in the same room as someone. And they couldn't be because we were all, we were all in quarantine. So perhaps I could backtrack a little bit and, and contextualize for our listener what exactly we're, we're talking about here. So uh, 2020 Vision, um, as we touched upon earlier, a musical, filmic, theatrical event, never anybody being in the same room at the same time. The song Miles is talking about comes two-thirds of the way through. Uh, but if I just fill in a few details before then, I was – very intrigued by the one on singing the document. And I was very intrigued by 
the this idea of taking people's real stories, whether it's it's um, uh, Tilly's autobiography and then turning it into lyrics at certain points in the in the piece for Tilly Nobody. And I'd heard the students say quite a few little phrases that had stuck with me. As Miles said, here they were stuck behind their screens. How could we give them a feeling of a live performance or at least a live rehearsal experience when they couldn't actually have that, that texture of being in the space together? Uh, so all the song lyrics are really inspired by things that I'd heard them say. Actually, with the exception of the one that Miles is talking about through the, through my screen. And it was actually Miles who said to the words, reach out through my screen. And the minute, and he just was improvising in the kitchen. And again, this is about sort of collaborative resonance. Miles had again heard that at that point in the dramaturgy, it needed a particular sound, a particular song. And he just happened to say, reach through the screen, which is exactly what the students wanted to do, reach through the screen. So in terms of our collaboration, David, um, I also knew that for something as bonkers as this, seven singers rehearsing a song over Zoom, when we know Zoom has a built-in delay, at that point we tried various other things. Maybe this is two years ago now, so the technology's changed. But at the time we tried something else called Sonobus. We could never all rehearse at the same time because I could never actually hear them harmonizing, synchronizing. So this bizarre experience of me sending you these really lame tracks of me doing three-part harmonies on garage band which i barely knew how to use anyway going okay these five songs the first one the opening number it needs to have a kind of rock-ish kind of feel something's gone wild in the world how do we deal with this the second one, Zoom, which I said, this is like the repetitive ooh, 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 ooh of Laurie Anderson's Superman, but Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. Here we are in a Zoom classroom, room, room. No more sitting, sitting next to whom, 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 whom. That sort of thing. The third one, Scream, which was this 10-minute epic. I mean, I don't know how mm. you did it, really, where the, the, <laughs> the, the these three – Yeah, I mean, it was bonkers. And you looped uh, – which took us through the whole year of news events that had happened yeah. during COVID. Good evening, my name is Camilo Castellón, and this is the 2020 News. January. For the first time since the Great Recession, women outnumber men in the U.S. workforce. Donald J. Trump becomes the first American president to attend the anti-abortion March for Life. And breaking news, Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. And then this last one, um, Turning 21, which was a little bit like the Coca-Cola advert. I like to teach the world to say something sweet, something sugary. So basically, I was sending you really rough garage band three-part harmonies for things with these references. And you came mm. up with these incredible arrangements. How the heck did you use the technology <laughs> to do it? Oh God, I, I don't know. It's it's I, I, I really still think that your sketches weren't 
the, as rough as you do describe them. Of course, it was just a guitar and you singing to it. But in some of the cases, you already had three, four voices in there. You had polyphony in there. You had all sorts of things. You have very interesting chord choices in there. So there was there was a lot to work with. <laughs> And I felt um, that I, I just know that I I can respond to things quite well. I don't think if you'd said to me, write me five songs for a for a COVID musical, I would have probably not gone very far. But responding to something that is already quite suggestive, and you also think sometimes, or I, you know, sometimes you, you explicitly make a reference such as the, the Laurie Anderson reference, but sometimes it's just sort of an implied genre of music in a way. I can feel it in the in the way you deliver it. This needs a bit of a bum, bum, bum bass, and this needs a, a pumping sort of straight eighths drum or something. And in the, oh, no, in that case, it can be a bit more percussion and it can be a bit more, this sounds like an island, a bit tropical, you know, it should have a bit of shaker or something. Do you know what I mean? So it, it, it's kind of, it's suggested in, in, in how you do it. Uh, and then it's also, um, again, a mixture of vision and pragmatics. You know, you, you, you have certain things that you envision and then you have certain things that are at your disposal where you feel, Oh, I've got a good sound for that. Or I, I've, I've got a, a friend who plays the flute and he can, he can really do something on that track and it will, it'll, you know, give it sort of that klezmer feeling or something, you know, and actually he played the clarinet as well. I think he played all kinds of winds, uh, wind instruments. Uh, and same, you know, I, I also happened to, uh, to know that my friend Lars uh, Hansen, uh, because he's a musician and uh, everything was closed, he, he didn't perform. So I said, do you have time to record some bass lines? Because I knew, I knew it would sort of make the songs, you know, it would really capture those, um, those genres much better than I could. He also was quite instrumental in the end because the recording situation was very difficult. Every student had to record on their phone while listening to the song or sort of to, to like a, a backing track. And they did so, and they did so really well, actually. You know, they really were all good singers, but of course they were never in the same room. So all the things that normally happen in a room where you breathe together, you find your T's together or whatever, you know, in, in, in the lyrics, uh, where you sort of adjust your, your, your intonation just a little bit, none of that could happen. So all of that had to happen in the software, uh, which is where last patients in particular came came in very handy because if you looked at the screen it was like every second of the screen was filled with three cuts you know so everything was cut minutely in order to shift that sort of just a fraction of a second earlier because then it was really and lift that one just a little bit up so it was really in tune etc cetera, etc cetera. so there was a lot of that detail work which you don't really hear unless you've really heard it from the beginning uh happening but it was it was great fun actually it was just uh really uh, you both should have gotten an award <laughs> no, you should have done. Well, when you, when, you consider, when you consider that you had all these students, some of whom had never sung before, acted before, whatever, both of you, the way you both handled, I remember listening to just you, both of you talking to the students through the songs, all of them recording their songs individually and then stitching it all together to to make it into a show was was remarkable what was implicit in the you know collaborative resonance that we were striking up here was imbuing them with excitement enthusiasm a feeling of rehearsing in a typical way even though it was covid and we couldn't be together so actually the detail even in your rough drafts 
was an emotionally significant thing for them because mm. they could start to feel where this was going uh, in their isolation. And they had to be yeah, their own yeah. sound mixers, their own stage mm. managers, their own costumes, their own cinematography, everything. They, you know, they were very independent. Yeah, yeah. And I think what, what also struck me was a curious mixture in this particular project, which was, again, a mixture of you had a number of really lovely colleagues involved as well who helped with, you know, set design, et cetera. And you had a number of students who we shouldn't forget mentioning who did all the video editing, which were also brilliant. And each found their own very unique style for each song, et cetera, et cetera. But despite all that expertise and despite some of the, the probably very good software that they used, it was quite DIY. You know, it was quite, oh, do you have something that looks a bit formal in your cupboard? Or, or do you have like a, a soft toy that looks like a fish because we need something that is do you know what i mean so it was very yeah. much sort of yeah what do we oh, have you got a, an iphone or an, another kind of phone and can record that can you can you go into your cupboard for that because that'll make a better recording so it was very much that and that that doesn't mean you know i think everyone involved was was very uh committed and careful but but it had to move quickly and it was sort of we work with what we had there. Well, it is amazing, isn't it, that when all the, you know, as you talked about the students and the student editors were just uh, out of this world, I thought. But when everybody jumps onto a project and it really is, becomes a real collaboration, not necessarily with one person being very dictatorial and saying, no, this is how I want it. But when it is a collaborative effort, things move at a much faster pace because everybody's on the same page and you don't really have to explain things. People go, oh, yeah, I, got, I get it. I get it. know exactly what you're talking about. I love the fact that David always has a friend who will do – he always says, oh, I've got a friend who's got a <laughs> xylophone or a, a sousaphone, <laughs> which he keeps in the cupboard. And I think the sousaphone would add enormously. I always have this feeling that one day we'll be saying, David, we're going to the moon to do yes. a recording on the moon. Now, you know, we have problems with actually things not staying where they are. They tend to move around. And David will say, but I, oh, I've got a friend. It's no problem. I, I've got this friend who's, I've got, this who's, friend. got, a, who's yeah. got a moon, moon sousaphonist. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, it helps. It helps to know, you know, what your limits are and where you, where you have to ask other people for help. And it's, and it's more fun. You know, it was sort of, uh, having a couple of musicians here in, in, I mean, to, to help on those tracks was just, you know, it was just good. Well, this has been immense fun. Immense fun. You've both been very, very good on my program. And very easy, very easy to, to, to interview. It's been one absolutely wonderful. I'm just wondering if you have any, any uh, harboring any thoughts about further collaborations, because this being a world now where, where we are, we, get, we seem to live on YouTube and things like that. How about bringing out a, a, a new YouTube musical that you could both write? I do have a project that I would love to uh, thrash out with David at some point. Um, it's a it's a big dream. It's um, a TV limited series that called the Three AM Club that um, culminates each episode in a diner that turns into like a, um, a cotton club. And I do have a song for each episode that conjures up or, or encapsulates what each part of which, which each episode's been about. And I, what I, I mean, I truly love working with you, David. Every time I get an arrangement from you, whether it's the finished version or if it's an early draft, 
I laugh and I smile with such excitement that somehow whatever madness was in my head, you somehow turned into something really quite legitimate and beautiful and fun. So I thoroughly enjoy this, this, this collaboration. Thank you so much, but I can only return the compliment. I mean, it's, it's, this is the thing when you, when you, when you enjoy something like sneaking in, what was this instrument we, we made stand in for Bhutan in a very sort of touristy way? It was some kind like of a cowbell. Some the glockenspiel. No, it wasn't. Well, the glockenspiel has to be in every show. That's yes, a given. Yeah, that's that's, yeah. that's it become an in joke, but you know, but it was some kind wasn't of a, a horn, sort of. Yeah, it, oh, it was yes. something. Weird. Like, and I know, found it somewhere on YouTube, someone playing that, and they snuck it in. It was way off key, but it was just sort of. It made me smile, and it, it made me smile because I knew it would make you smile as well. So that you know, it. it in our eyes, then it's you have to have someone in your mind who you are arranging something for and some someone who will appreciate and who will actually which you do listen to the track like three four times and go like oh and i now i've discovered this and there's also that and wonderful i mean there, there's no blueprint for that kind of collaboration it, it, it has to have some kind of you know connection that you've i mean we, we were lucky enough to forge that connection because we worked together in a in, in exeter for a few years before you went uh went to america i think that was crucial once you've once you've sat through a number of meetings and had a had a, had a laugh at the pub you know it sort of makes a spot makes a on. difference spot on yeah. because it's a shared sense of humor it's a shared uh you know cultural references even though you know i'm i'm a brit you're a german miles is from zimbabwe we, we have enough shared reference points to get it and the song you just mentioned where it said Bhutan, this is the Through My Screen song in 2020 Vision, where the two people from their individual computers go on a, a world tour date through different Zoom screens, Zoom backgrounds. And I, you know, when I said to you, honestly, do whatever you want in Paris, be put in accordions in Bhutan, put in, put in cowbells or whatever in, 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 in the Bahamas do, you know, and you just, I knew you'd do it. I knew you'd get the, the, playfulness the, the playfulness, the right smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always a sense of humour. There's always a sense of humour that underlies both your works. I think the ability to laugh at oneself and one is is a, a great attribute. I commend you both, Professor Rosner, <laughs> Professor Merlin. Brilliant. <laughs> 